This podcast is brought to you by the Voinovich School of Leadership and Public Affairs at Ohio University. Hi, everyone. I'm Bev Jones, and this is Jazzed About Work, where we talk about everything that can have an impact on your career. Today on Jazzed About Work, we'll be talking about careers related to protecting the environment. My guest is Jeff DeBelco, a professor of environmental studies, a senior advisor to the prestigious Wilson Center, and an international expert on environmental approaches to peacekeeping. Jeff will offer tips about how you might build a career dedicated to serving the environment. Jeff, I want to explore your career in the environmental area in many facets of environmentalism. But first, I have to congratulate you. You recently won a spectacular award. As I understand it, you won the Al Moomin Award in Environmental Peacekeeping. And when the UN Environment Committee, which is one of the participants in making the award, when they spoke about you, they talked about how you and and your partner, Ken Conca, really were thought leaders. You sort of shaped environmental peacekeeping. So before we get into your career, I want you to explain to us, what is environmental peacekeeping? Uh, Well, thank you, Bev. You're very kind. Um, So in the middle of the 90s, uh, the Cold War had ended, and folks looking at issues of conflict and security were focusing on how natural resources environment might be contributing to violence organized violence. And that was an important topic, but um, it had kind of stalled in terms of the focus. And what Ken and I did was we essentially said, can we turn the logic on its head, the notion that we are competing for scarce resources, and, um, and but we're interdependent, whether we're communities or countries mm-hmm. on those resources, can we turn the logic on its head and use uh, environmental management for building trust, confidence, and hopefully ultimately peace. And um, we wrote a book about it. We facilitated a variety of conversations about it. I was at the Woodrow Wilson Center, uh, the nonprofit non-advocacy forum, a memorial literally for um, Woodrow Wilson, uh, where we had the opportunity to bring parties together, everything from the military and the intelligence community and traditional security, as well as uh, uh, scientists and environmental NGOs and academics uh, together to try to discuss these issues. And so those ideas have gone on to be worked with by a variety of folks, and uh, this award Uh, honoring uh, the first uh, Iraqi environmental minister who um, uh, displayed a lot of bravery and creativity in the work that she did, um, uh, honors those uh, contributing to the field of environmental peace building. And so we were very fortunate to receive that award. Well, my understanding is that you've had an impact on the thinking of governments and NGOs and organizations around the world. So I, I congratulate you on that. Now, These days, you are highly distinguished. You're an associate dean and director of the Environmental Studies Program at the Voinovich School at Ohio University. But what I'd like to hear a bit about is how did you get here? How did you become so passionate 
about working in support of the environment. And how did you go about building a career? Are you a guy who planned it all along the way, or how did it happen? Well, um, yeah, so I had the very good fortune of growing up in a small college town. Happened to be this college town at Ohio University in Athens, Ohio, so I'm townie. Um, and I was interested, uh, particularly in high school and uh, the local county party chairman got me into not just the studying it, but the doing it in local politics, which became national politics. And so when I went off to school, I studied uh, political science and got into um, international issues. So I started to I started broadly with politics, then got into the international issues, but still it was primarily political. And uh, it wasn't actually till my senior year of college that I started putting the environmental issues together with the politics of it. So I come to um, the environmental studies program here at Ohio University looking at the social, economic, and political dimensions of how we um, manage and understand environment, natural resources issues. So a little different than some, or a different track that would be focusing on a natural science or physical science yeah. perspective. Um, and so I kind of kept getting um, fantastic opportunities after undergraduate school, went to Washington, D.C., and again worked in what wasn't um, yet a focused realm. It was working at Foreign Policy Magazine, where there are many topics that included these issues. And it was a fascinating time. It was the end of the Cold War. And so suddenly, they weren't new issues, but issues that could newly be discussed as priorities in a foreign policy context, like environment, like poverty, like health. Well, give me an example of the, the kind of specific issues impacting the environment that you were working with in that era, an international sure. community. So in the early 1990s, we had um, we had a spate of countries that were facing, well, um, coups and civil conflicts and civil wars. We had uh, Somalia in 93, Haiti in 94, the Rwandan genocide in 94, uh, wars in West Africa. And um, both in the research and the articles I was reading and then the policy community, people were asking questions. So what role, if any, do environmental issues and natural resource issues play in this, you know, ultimate political conflict, which was armed conflict. And so that fascinated me because it combined my interests in the politics, the international, and a really strong substantive engagement with, okay, these environmental issues, which, you know, the the caricature, some for some people, assumption, for many, a caricature of environmental issues is about you know, hugging trees and hugging pandas. And it wasn't that kind of um, integration of uh, high politics or high priority issue where literally the uh, environmental issues had the potential to be life and death. And uh, even when there wasn't the conflict, life and death in the sense that those resources were critical to the livelihoods of literally a couple billion people in the world. And those seemed like weighty issues that were worth trying to learn more and then ultimately kind of focus of my career. So you're talking about things like access to clean water and... Uh, Forests, fish, 
uh, degradation of, of land so that you can't eke out a living in agriculture. And so in Haiti, for example, on the one hand, you had a complex political mix. But part of what we were trying to understand is, well, you know, it's a mountainous country that's 95, 98 percent deforested. And so and it's also in Hurricane Alley. And so when that comes through and you have high levels of, of displacement from from uh, soil erosion and rural to urban migration and then overwhelmed urban areas that have uh, you know really complex political as well as criminal uh, context behind these conflicts. It wasn't that, well, the fact that Haiti has no trees causes them to have a coup, but how do you tell the story of that political future of that country without understanding these natural resource issues? So it's not an easy question. It's complex. It's hard to do lots of um, in-depth studies for a variety of reasons. But to me, that mix of environment, um, whether it's yeah, fish, forest, water, um, uh, with connections to politics was just fascinating. At the Voinovich School, in your, when there are programs there, mm-hmm. it can be policy discussions, but you have people who are working on stream cleanup and who are actually kind of out in the fields in the water studying or, or doing remediation. It strikes me that the programs just in one school are so varied. And I imagine the career opportunities for young people who are inspired in the same way you've been by uh, the huge impact of these programs. There are a lot of different ways to begin, I guess. Absolutely. But I think the commonality and the rationale for starting the Environmental Studies Program in 1970 was the problems that we're facing today do not lend themselves to simple solutions that might kind of come out of training in one discipline one tool mm-hmm. in the toolbox. And so the program is specifically designed and the backgrounds of the faculty and professional staff illustrate this to expose people not to necessarily be fluent in the language of all these disciplines, but there needs to be a level of uh, understanding, comprehension, familiarity, and a habit of working in teams, of embracing rather than penalizing, frankly, interdisciplinary work. That if you're not an economist, you still know enough about economics that you need to pull one into your team to solve these problems and have and be able to speak enough of that language to understand um, as a say many of the, the partners for the Voinovich School, you're a local mayor. You, we want to support and work with you to help solve your problems. But as, as we're training in our public administration program, these future public administrators, we want them to know, hey, uh, we need a, a, a GIS team for data visualization and mapping to help understand this problem. No, actually, here in southeastern Ohio, where acid mine drainage is a problem, we need uh, a hydrogeoengineer to understand what our conditions really are. And so that's a technical um, analysis, but it's so critical to our local economy, to uh, human health. These are these are things that are just connected, and so we really make a point of um, of exposing the students to that, and they love it because it's flexible, and it allows them to chart that path of their own. And uh, it's 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 fair to say that no one student. We're primarily a graduate program. No one of our master students has the same path and the same trajectory because. We really do um, tackle a lot of different issues and provide them with a lot of different tools so they go in all, all sorts of directions. And in this program and, and, I, and other programs as well, it sounds like, 
environmental problem solving is an international effort. And so when you're talking about building cross-functional teams, you're not just talking about you've got an engineer and economist. You're talking about people from different countries with different kinds of experiences and forging a team, people working together that might be across long distances or many kind of disciplines. Is how, how, how do you organize that? Is there a special kind of leadership skill set that you need to do that sort of international work? Um, humility, <laughs> um, working in teams, working in networks, curiosity outside your area of specialty. Um, I, I was struck when interviewing some of the facilitators for negotiations around the Nile River, right, shared by all these countries, and um, they really emphasized, you know, you have to have the historical knowledge of, of how the politics behind this developed. You have to have the um, the, the cultural perspective to understand what water means in these different cultures in terms of identity, in terms of religion, as well as economic activity. Um, and then you need to know those technical, you need the hydrologists at the table, uh, you need the economists to understand how it's part of the economy. And sometimes that's in one person, many times it's not. Um, but the openness to understand that there's not just a technical solution. Right? How many times have we had a technical solution offered, whether that's an economic one or an engineered one, and say, well, but this is just the most rational use of the water, so why don't you just do it, right? Mm -hmm. Come on, politician, here's my book. Figure out the solution. And what we have found, I have found, and what we're trying to instill is a notion of we really have to have these multiple perspectives uh, at the table to appreciate what the needs are, what the interests of the various stakeholders are, right? I mean, we really have to understand that um, that technical solution may ultimately be where you arrive, but you need to start and talk about, you know, what do these resources mean for you in terms of identity and your family history and your your community leader? What does this mean um, for you? And so that's a those are different skill sets that one ideally develops. Uh, uh, in an individual, but at least appreciation for their importance. We'll be back with Bev after this brief message. Are you ready to make a difference in the world? The Voinovich School of Leadership and Public Affairs at Ohio University can give you the skills to do just that. The school offers a multidisciplinary approach where public policy, environmental studies, and entrepreneurship come together to educate tomorrow's leaders. Learn more about the Master's in Public Administration or Environmental Studies by visiting ohio.edu backslash School. I started thinking about careers in support of the environment and making a list of the different ways to get at it. You could go to law school and study environmental law, or you could become an engineer, or you could become a communications person, or you could be one of the people who goes down into those acid-polluted um, streams and, and 
kind of work there. You could work in the soil or mm-hmm. you could be forestry. Or, and the list went on and on and on. And I sort of thought, oh, my goodness, name a career route and maybe there's a way to impact the environment. So, Teacher. Teacher. Uh, we'll add education to that one yeah. as well. Mm-hmm. So if you are someone who has a skill set or maybe is thinking of getting a new skill set, it's sort of as though that is one thing, but the other thing is what is the path mm-hmm. for getting involved? What would you say, um, whether a young person starting out or maybe somebody who wants more meaning in their life and mm-hmm. wants to find ways to put their skills in service of the environment, what, how would you suggest people get started? Well, um, it, it, it may be a, a challenging answer, but I would say given that diversity, there are almost an infinite number of pathways in. If you're interested in starting a business, if you're interested in business, we desperately need people using that toolbox to try to find ways. For example, asset mine drainage. We have very interesting and uh, promising developments now where folks are pulling the iron out of the acid mine drainage, out of that water, drying it, and selling it as paints. Right? They're finding a way to generate income that cleans the water and tries to make that process sustainable, economically sustainable, right? So infinite number, you know, from from that to Elon Musk and Tesla and kind of the green energy transition there. Um, So if you're interested in business, that can be working with local ones. It could be um, interning, volunteering, and learning how to be a solar panel installer yourself to understand the technical, even if you want to go to... Um, if you're interested in environmental education, if you want to be a teacher, there are um, so many opportunities. We just had one student who was uh, mixing her interest in agriculture and education and interned and worked with the Community Food Initiatives, a local group that addresses food insecurity in the region, and started developing modules for students to better understand that at in in secondary school. All right. Now, food insecurity mm-hmm. is a is a very hot and developing area that we, we didn't use that terminology not that many years ago. Mm-hmm. Would you tell us a little bit about what's happening with food insecurity issues? Well, uh, you know, um, from here in southeastern Ohio, we have places that, um, you know, counties that went years without a grocery store for their whole county, right, in Vinton County. So food deserts. Uh, inability to easily access healthy food. Um, So access is a big issue. Um, We have big challenges in terms of what kinds of food. There are all sorts of both scientific and cultural questions around um, the use of genetic uh, modified uh, techniques for agriculture. And that's one where there's lots of um, there's lots of active debate, right? Um, reasonable people can disagree. Um, but, you know, in some ways, some of that is meant to try to address food insecurity by saying making a crop more resistant to drought or more resistant to sudden ra- uh, lots of rain, you mm-hmm. know, too much or too little. Um, at the same time, a lot of concerns about uh, what the down the road human health impacts may be. Um, a lot of it, frankly, is. Um, it's not about having enough food, but it's about purchasing power. So quickly you get into issues of poverty and access. Um, and whether that's uh, working on 
making that access available through public schools, through very creative um, um, uh, efforts, up to some fascinating analysis, uh, you know, how do we feed 10, 10 billion people in 2050 in a sustainable fashion that doesn't have the effect of, of um, undercutting the fundamental vitality of the earth? Right? Given the number of people and rising expectations, what we eat, big questions that we make jokes about um, kind of vegetarianism and addressing environmental problems. But it really – it takes so much more water and resources to eat meat, to yeah. eat that protein source. And so we need to have those conversations. So you know, under, under that food security label, it can be everything from – um, from very local uh, access to food issues to the fate of the planet. It feels as though you can begin almost anywhere. Any part of natural resources or agriculture, the environment, and you pull out one piece of the puzzle and then more pieces mm-hmm. come, and you mm-hmm. end up with huge questions about the fate of the planet. Mm-hmm. It's a little overwhelming. Mm-hmm. Do you find yourself sometimes in despair or do you feel as though there's so much going on now, so many different paths to solutions Mm -hmm. that you return to optimism? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think think, um, while many days it is difficult to maintain optimism, I think one has to have it. And some of that for me is rooted in the fact that many of the problems we have are ones that we humans have created. And so if we've created them in part, we can we can address them. Um, and so they are not about um, in some ways this kind of deterministic nightmare doomsday scenarios that will therefore happen. We're going to have this many people and over this many years, it'll all the water will run out. And, you know, so it's bound to happen. Um, when in fact, it's about making choices. It's about, and that's where I focus on the politics. It's about making choices and how we live, where we live, what we consume, what we don't. And the, that at the end of the day is a negotiation and one where we have exhibited a lot of creativity. Now, I'm skeptical of a kind of, again, assumption the other direction, which is, oh, technology will take care of it. Another Einstein will be born and it, he or she will figure it all out. Um, but on the other hand, I do think that um, uh, many of these challenges, they're, they're, they're Lots and lots of examples to point to how we have dramatically increased human well-being um, in in ways that even a couple decades ago would be hard to imagine. Um, and so, in that, I do see um, the seeds for for optimism. Because at the end of the day, also, if it's if we're not going to be optimistic, then we just kind of give up, and that that seems a little just too easy. Yeah, it seems like. Uh Quitting is never the answer. And there are so many um, changes. Technology maybe can help us. Uh, If you were starting out, Mm -hmm. if you were 18 or 19 Mm -hmm. today and you're kind of interested in technology and you're interested in policy, what, what would you study? Where would you begin? Yeah. I can tell you a combination. I would study a foreign language, um, Chinese preferably. Um, I would 
really pay attention in those economics classes and in those data analysis cl classes. Um, I would do that, try to learn that not just in the classes, but by working with it. So going proactively seeking out internships that exposed me to that kind of work. To data analytics. Yeah, and data visualization, you know, in some ways how we use data to tell stories, mm -hmm. right? If part of this is, is um, understanding where we are to know where we want to go, we have to know what some of the conditions are. And some of that is how to collect and understand and analyze data. Then that's the first step in a very technical sense. Then the other, I would spend um, more time than I certainly did in um, programs around communication. And um, I'd go to the business school and take behavior, um, uh, behavioral psychology classes to understand uh, why people change their minds. I mean, in many respects, we are not talking about um, little changes, and that's why it is daunting. But if we make, um, you know, if we're looking for other big changes in history akin to, say, uh, transition to a greener energy economy, we're not talking about tweaks. We're talking about, okay, um, you know, in the 1860s, slavery was legal in this country. And that was seen as an okay way to organize your economy. Now we've moved to that's not just morally. I mean, it's morally as well as um, the law of the land that that's not the case. That was a long transition. We fought a war. It took, it took a long time. But that was a combination of understanding economics. That was an understanding of culture. That was uh, a strong moral argument that this was just not okay. Um, and so, you know, w will we see uh, w will we see someday a world where our current patterns of consumption were just viewed in retrospect as 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 not just economically unwise, but morally, um, yeah, just uh, the the <laughs> it just becomes immoral to consume at such a wasteful level, right? And that's a difficult transition. One doesn't do it. One certainly doesn't do it by shaking your finger at someone and saying, thou shalt not, right? Um, well, it's partly communication you're talking about. It really about. is, yeah. When you can see the consequences of being careless with resources, when you can see how what you do maybe hurt somebody else mm -hmm. or uh, the waste contributes to somebody else suffering or small things can add up to huge things. When, when you can see that, then sometimes big leaps, moral leaps, leaps in comprehension, they're possible because they, they become obvious. And technology is, um, is certainly part of how we're able to change our minds quickly. I mean, when you think about it, it wasn't that long ago we didn't have smartphones. We didn't have all kinds of analytics. You have email. The students today can't imagine. Yeah. I mean, the stories. I told them when I entered the workforce, the fax machine was like a eureka machine. Yeah. And, oh, and you know, just a few years before that, computers. I mean, so the rate of change is, is amazing. And I think studying and understanding that history of technology and where it's going is critically important if we're going to uh, try to conceive of ways to do it. And that's, that's where I think a... In going in depth and learning a specific area is critically important. 
But um, I think we have almost kind of a, oh, I'm going to get rid of these general education requirements and then move on to specialization. Well, I think it really different ways of knowing about similar topics, critically important so that we can have that sense of history and we can take that philosophy class to understand uh, moral debates and that we can take that class in business or engineering to understand these are all different tools in the toolbox and we really we want a lot of tools there so that we can we can deploy them in in um, in combination to so, tackle these problems you know i work a lot with pretty highly successful people in all kinds of fields and it it, it seems to me that there's a pattern when you see people who are doing really well who are making a big contribution who are high achievers they tend to go deep. They have an area of expertise, but they also go wide. They're people who read broadly or they get in conversations or they listen to other disciplines, and um, they may go from deep expertise to a totally different one. So that if you're interested in having some impact on the environment, no matter what you're doing, kind of looking at parallel activity, looking at fields that might be close to yours that are having some kind of impact, spreading your view a little wider, mm -hmm. kind of asking questions, what's the environmental impact of this or how could I help that? It's, it's as though if you want to be in the game, you just commit yourself to endless learning. Well, and that's right. That's, that's how you have to play it. Asking questions and then actually listening. Asking questions uh, of how people perceive the issues that you're working on. And then a big one for me, and I learned this a hard way in, in Washington, um, uh, working there for a couple decades, a lot of people want to have that label, whether it's a funder, wants it, they, they're funding this topic. But in fact, you learn that the way you can achieve the objectives of that topic, tackling that issue, um, it really matters what the other people that you need to have collaborating with you, what they call it, what are their priorities. And so whether that was an experience I had, oh, I don't know, 20, uh, 20 years ago um, with a U.S.-European-Chinese dialogue on climate change. And the U.S. and Europeans, we went over there wanted to talk about climate change. Well, climate change was not their priority. And so the Chinese said, no, thanks. Now, had we gone and talked about energy efficiency for dirty boilers and the health impacts of, of particulate matter on their population, we could have had a very active dialogue, reduced those CO2 emissions that were our ultimate objective and met their um, met the things that were interesting to them and still had a win-win situation. But we had to understand what that was the case. I think biggest bottom line here on, on uh, environmental issues in, in many cases, it's well, this is an economic question. This is a question of identity, right, in terms of how we tackle the legacy uh, and the industry of coal and moving forward. Those folks understand that mechanization and cheap gas is part of why coal is not economically competitive. But it's about more than just those questions. They're larger cultural questions. Unless we have that conversation, we're not going to move forward. Well, let's, let's bring things home a bit. Ohio University is... Uh, located within the Appalachian region of Ohio, and uh, a lot of work has gone here uh, with the Appalachian Regional Commission and groups that are focusing on the economy here. If you are looking just at this region, not the entire world, mm -hmm. <laughs> knowing that all is interconnected, mm -hmm. and, and you wanted to have 
some impact in this region mm -hmm. and you wanted to narrow it in and recruit other people to kind of join with you, where would you start in this region to improve the, the health of our little corner of the planet and, and maybe help the people who live here as well? Mm -hmm. Well, I would talk to the people here and understand where they want to go, what is their source of insecurities, and uh, how do we together fashion a sustainable and prosperous future. I think in part there is a a lot more to build on. We're a lot farther down that road than people think. And so I think uh, um, sharing the counter narrative of the dynamic um, sustainable agriculture economy that we have, the amazing potential for ecotourism that we're already seeing with, we essentially live in the middle of a of, of fantastic natural area that people want to come and see and enjoy. We have a dynamic um, green energy, renewable energy economy with all sorts of innovation going on. Now we have a lot of poverty and need as well. And understanding that those two things are not either ors, but they go side by side. And so how do we um, respect the culture and the history of this region and build that on that and take advantage of the expertise that comes from that history um, and, um, and build on it going forward? I think it is um, first and foremost, it is engaging in community-based organizations from a variety of perspectives. In many ways, find if you're interested in environment, find ways to do that through an institution that's not focused on it, right? Uh, engage with Habitat for Humanity or community food initiatives or an economic uh, growth-focused um, um, effort so that you understand what role environment natural resources play in it, bring that perspective into a discussion, but do that in a way that doesn't require that the word environment be on the at the top of the list every time. And not, but yet, it's critical to our success. So your advice is that if you're interested in having an impact on the environment, start with wherever you are. Start with the organizations or the systems or the projects that are nearby where you can enter or have an impact. And look at where you are and then see how whatever is going on may impact the environment. Is that right? That's right. I and mean, we have a dynamic and active community that kind of comes to it from that environmental perspective. But ultimately, one has to expand the choir and understand how these issues also need to be part of um, wider organizations. So what are, what are anti-poverty efforts doing? And how can that be connected with healthy, safe, organic, sustainable food? And those are those are two things that can come together very easily. Um, but, you know, we, 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 uh, we diversify our challenges by putting more on the table, and then we find out how we can work together to, to solve them. Because I think uh, if, you know, kind of metaphorically, all these different topics have their own tribes in their own offices or sectors of the government or different NGOs devoted to single, uh, single uh, issues, and we don't find ways to work together, then we're going to make marginal progress in each of these different areas, but really not have the sum total. Because 
they aren't just scientific topics. They're political topics. They're social topics. They're economic topics. And so that we have to kind of bring the environment back into these other areas and be comfortable knowing that um, because of that diversity, they're a role for so many different people with so many different backgrounds. So we need that. We need that diversity. Well, I often ask at uh, the end of Jazzed About Work and for, for parting uh, recommendations for somebody uh, looking for a career in X field. And it sounds to me that what you're saying is it doesn't matter what field you choose. If you want a career that will take you into uh, the grappling of with these issues, you're saying start where you are and start with whatever you like to do or you can do or you're uh, close to being able to do. Is that right? Uh, absolutely. I mean, I think if you walk into a room and the organization that you're working with and you know everybody already, then you're not getting out enough. Then you're not pushing yourself into enough different areas where you're expanding your all these things that are good for jobs, period. Expanding your network, learning different uh, tools, understanding how other people see the same issues or bring new issues to the table. And so those... Um, Pushing ourselves outside our comfort zones in ways that are often so rewarding is critically important. And that may mean going to a different part of the country, going to a different topic area, uh, taking classes in a different major. Um, those are all things that will help. Well, those are excellent tips for, for anybody. I think uh, learn something new and keep building your network and listen wherever you go. I think that kind of sums it up. I really appreciate you joining me today, and I, I look forward to seeing what you're going to do next. And again, congratulations on that Distinguished International Award for Environmental Peacekeeping. Thank you so much, Beth. Today on Jazzed About Work, we've been talking with groundbreaking professor Jeff DeBelco about careers related to protecting the environment. Today's tip is that one way to stay totally jazzed about your career is to find a job dedicated to doing things that matter. If you care deeply about saving the environment, there are many rewarding paths, from studying engineering to tweaking your communication skills. This podcast is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our audio engineer, and I'm your host, Beverly Jones, author of Think Like an Entrepreneur, Act Like a CEO. 